Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, November 19th. We begin with a discussion about the race to find a COVID-19 vaccine. With promising news this week by two pharmaceutical companies, we focus on the logistics of the distribution of an approved vaccine that will require many million doses in our country. We speak with a virologist from the University of Ottawa. Next, we share some good news business stories locally and provincially. We hear the success story of Calgary's Stream Dental HR, which has garnered international attention for their unique approach to human resources in the field of dentistry. Then we look at the potential for Alberta to be a major player in the development and distribution of hydrogen energy. We speak with Dan Wicklam of Transition Accelerator. And finally, it's a true example of strength in numbers. We learn all about the newly launched collective of 24 food-based businesses getting their products directly to consumers. We meet the creator of Best of Calgary Foods. 709 now, and as Canada inches closer to a COVID-19 vaccine rollout, how will treatment, how will it be implemented here in our country? What did we learn from Canada's largest ever mass immunization effort back in 2010 with the H1N1 vaccine? Joining us now to discuss is Earl Brown, a professor of virology at the University of Ottawa. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, interesting topic as we get closer to, uh, you know, a potential vaccine and, and what that might look like for Canadians to start rolling up their sleeves. Can you remind us how the government rolled it out back in 2010 for H1N1? Uh, well, I'll just give you a little bit of context from the time. Uh, H1N1 showed up in uh, 2009, but at that point, everybody was uh, talking bird flu. So uh, at the time, uh, the government had uh, commissioned GSK uh, vaccine maker to make H5N1 bird flu vaccine and so I was on the committees we were making the vaccine and it really wasn't going that well the vaccine was weak and trying to solve those problems and the GSK came up with the uh, the adding adjuvant which sort of boosts the vaccine and made it stronger and so that, that was going on and then all of a sudden from left field uh, H1N1 came from the farm farm pigs into people and we had the H1N1 pandemic starting so it was time to switch gears, so stop working on the H5N1, start on the H1N1. And that was the spring of, uh, spring of uh, 2010, just following. And so they had to get this vaccine made, but they were making the seasonal vaccine. And so this is a sort of a big production to make the vaccine. They've got to make it in chicken embryos, and so they have to have a lot of chicken embryos lined up. And they were making the seasonal vaccine. All of a sudden they said, well, should we throw all that stuff out, you know, jettison the lines and clean up and start H1N1? Uh, those discussions, they said, well, no, we'll, we'll keep our, our seasonal flu. And then they, they had to make the H1N1 at the same time. And so they're making the H1N1 vaccine, and you have to do some little manipulations. They, they take the genes from the H1N1 and put it into a stronger strain that grows better in chicken eggs. But even when they did that, it didn't grow very well in chicken eggs. And with the amount of chicken eggs and the amount they needed, it just wasn't working out math-wise. But they'd had the problem with the H5N1 where it was, it was a weak uh, vaccine, and so they boosted it. And so they took the small amount of H1N1 they could make or the smaller amount than they, than they wanted to make, and they diluted it out a bit, added the, the immune system booster, the adjuvant, and it worked. And so... Uh, you know, they had, they had some little glitches they, you know, that was made by GSK in, in Europe and sent in bulk to uh, Laval, and the bottling line had some glitches, and, and so they had a couple of weeks delay there. And, uh, but they did get it out by the October-ish window and, and uh, started the vaccine program where they had to, you know, strike clinics, get people in, get people vaccinated, and push it through to, uh, for the season. And uh, worked out generally well, but they had to, you know, hurry up and and you get things done at the time. Mm. 
Earl, you broke down those steps and you mentioned October. So if we can back it up a bit, the t- the time frame from beginning to end, and I know it morphed more than a couple of times as far as the plan. How many months did it take then, uh, or how long uh, in, in a year uh, did it take to have that vaccine ready for the public? So it was probably a good six to nine months, uh, given the start and, and the finish there. Uh, but, you know, it was a bit of a, we're in the COVID throws right now and so more unknowns uh, mm-hmm. to make a flu vaccine every year so there was sort of a, they knew what to do with the h1n1 they just had to do it with sort of a new a new set of genes there and so the uh licensing was more routine they know what to look at and that sort of thing so but they they did uh go through without too many glitches uh, solved the problems as they came along and did get the vaccine made and distributed and, you know, safety tests and the rest of it. You know, nothing goes into people until you test the safety and whether it works. And you have to do those things first. On that note, as a professor of virology, do you have any concerns about how quickly we've come up? We, They, experts, scientists, have come up with a vaccine and, and the safety of it long term? Uh, you know, there's always concerns. This is a bit of a new territory. We don't have a vaccine against uh, a coronavirus for humans. And so this would be the first one. And then uh, added to that, they've got a new technology. They're making this uh, RNA is, is basically a messenger RNA molecule uh, uh, packaged in, in some, some lipid. And so this is the gene for the protein of the virus is what you're getting vaccinated with. And so this is sort of a new approach and uh, it appears to be working. But with the newness had people concerned and uh, they couldn't have made such a vaccine 10 years ago because the technology wouldn't allow them to do it. So technology is moving along, new platform, and we've got a new vaccine and, you know, everybody's holding their breath and the first day that comes out, it's better than expected. And so, you know, we're still holding our breath somewhat because uh, the results are just coming from the phase three trials where they're actually having people infected and seeing if they're protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, vaccinate them and then follow the, the facing the virus. And the first data is very good. And then they've got more data accumulating and the data is holding up. Uh, it's still not uh, through the finish line, but everything's uh, falling in line. Uh, it's working. And then the, you still have a lot of unknowns. Uh, how good does it work? Are these people that don't get sick when they're vaccinated, do they still get infected with and spreading some virus around? It sort of changes the public health approach. But uh, First blush, it's very good. Uh, vaccines seems to protect 95% of people vaccinated. And uh, there's no sign that there's a health concern, a safety risk right now, but that's early days. You want to look longer and look for everything and see that things don't pop out of the, the woodwork there. But uh, everything seems to be falling in line right now. And uh, then the next challenge, let's say that everything continues to be good. It has to be licensed, so we don't put anything has to go through Health Canada, we license our own vaccines. So they would have to be presented with the data and they'd have to come to the conclusion that yes, it's safe and yes, it's, it's effective and we're going to give it to Canadians. And so there's a process there. They're, they're working it on it as they go, as they get data. But uh, until we get licensed, we can't give it to people. And then once you give it to people, this is a new vaccine. And I mentioned right. it's a messenger RNA. So it's the, it's the coding message for what, how proteins are made in our cells. That's what the vaccine is. And so that stuff is very fragile. And so they have to keep it in low temperature freezers, and that's not normal in healthcare. We use normal freezers like food freezers, minus 20. This RNA material needs a minus 70 range freezer. So that's, you know, you'd have to get in those freezers. You have to ship it on your, your supply 
uh, on your trucks and your planes have to maintain minus 70. So some challenges are added on top of this new vaccine. Or we got about 30 seconds, but I'm wondering, you know, when we finally get it for the people on mass and not just the priority people who will get the first doses, are, can we expect it to be rolled out very similar to, uh, to H1N1? I know here in the city of Calgary we had rec centers and, and major centers, like a, a half dozen or a dozen in each city. Is that the best way to, and most effective way to get a vaccine out, like a, a COVID-19 vaccine? Yes. So, you know, the vaccine, the vaccination process is just going to be like any other vaccine. It's going to be drawn up in a syringe and put in your arm. And so all the mechanics are pretty much the same as the other vaccine approaches, other than the fact that you have to keep this stuff cold. But uh, you have to keep it cold until you use it. And then you actually have five days in a fridge so that, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, drop dead as soon as you uh, for the vaccine, as long as uh, once it's thawed out, it's, it's still good for another week. So but they'll have to make those things work out as far as their cold chain. But they're going to vaccinate like they vaccinated us, us uh, in past times. OK, so, so thanks so much for your perspective on this. Appreciate your time this morning. Good to talk. That is Earl Brown, professor of virology at the University of Ottawa. 619 now and a small Calgary dental HR firm has gotten the attention of the world's largest dental supplier. Joining us with details on how they got on the global map is Samantha Leonard, CEO and co-founder of Stream Dental HR. Good morning, Samantha. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Congratulations. I mean, first off, okay, dental HR firm. What the heck do you do? (laughs) Yeah, we get that question a lot. I definitely understand that. Well, what we do is we really help practice owners and whether that's dentists or medical providers really offload the burden when it comes to human resources, everything from administration to management, occupational health and safety, recruitment. And oftentimes these healthcare providers are so busy taking care of patients that don't have that time and energy to really take care of that management side when it comes to their people. So that's where we step in. Gotcha. You got some international attention for what you do. Tell us about this and and, uh, who reached out. Yeah, um, so it's definitely great, and we're thrilled and excited about this opportunity for a small firm like us to be recognized on such a large scale. And I think it really happened over COVID when everything broke out. There was just so many unknowns, and practice owners were all of a sudden had to shut their door within 24 hours and lay off their team. So they didn't really have, um, you know, some answers or some support. So that's where we came in. And we actually did over a four-week period 50 free webinars and trainings online to be able to help as many practitioners as possible. And that really caught the attention of Henry Schein and reached out to us to to partner and recognize us as a leader in HR for dentists and medical offices. Amazing. So it paid off, obviously. What what does this mean now then for the future of your company and, and potential growth? Well, we're we're really excited to be able to help more and more practice owners. Like this platform is huge for a small firm like us to be, um, you know, have that opportunity to reach more and more people and help other offices. So our goal is to continue to expand, serve more healthcare professionals, and we're also expanding the features on our HR software and hopefully can continue to help other offices outside of Canada and the U.S. and maybe go global. A success story, and it, it's got to give optimism to not only Albertans that we're not just oil and gas, we have different industries, but also this would give hope to any business operating within the borders of our province that you can grow bigger than not just Alberta, but the country, can't you? Right, exactly. And so it's just, you know, stepping up to be able to help the community out. And I think that's what really set us apart. And we just continue to find more ways to be able to help other people. And it's really exciting to make more and more of an impact in uh, outside of Calgary. Good news story for a Calgary company. Congratulations and uh, wishing you much growth and much success as you go forward, Samantha. 
I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. That is Samantha Leonard, CEO, co-founder of Stream Dental HR. And you can go online, streamdentalhr.com. I energy. Sometimes I think I'm running out of energy. 811 now, and a corridor in northern Alberta known as the Industrial Heartland has the potential to be Canada's first hydrogen production hub. That according to a new report from Energy Emissions Research Group, Transition Accelerator. CEO of the group, Dan Wicklam, joins us now with more on the findings. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so hydrogen energy, let's talk about this. Where does it come from? How do we get it? And how could Alberta become a hub? So hydrogen holds great promise. There's there's a couple of ways to make hydrogen. The one that's most promising for Alberta is taking natural gas and then upgrading it. Uh, and the, the, there's carbon dioxide that's produced with that upgrading process. But as long as you capture and then store that carbon dioxide, sequester it, we're really good at that in Alberta. What you end up with is only hydrogen that can then be used as a fuel with zero emissions. Mm. So the promise for hydrogen is to take our fossil fuel resources and upgrade them in a way and into a fuel that's completely compatible with a very low or even a, a zero emissions world. Dan, what's interesting, if, you, if you, uh, you do a little digging, this is your area of expertise, but for me, I was shocked because when we talk about the energy industry, the traditional oil and gas, you know, the bucks that can come in, uh, but the, globally, the hydrogen industry, when it comes to the dollars available, it's no joke. So we've seen a real... Uh, proliferation of countries around the world interested in hydrogen. So over 20 countries just in the last 18 months have have produced a national hydrogen plan. And I, I think the issue is, is that for decades, we've been trying to reduce emissions. And there's lots of ways to do that, lots of ways to reduce emissions. But the new conversation now in 77 countries around the world have committed to net zero emissions. So essentially eliminating emiss- emissions. And if you want to create an energy system in the future that is net zero emissions, so essentially no emissions, and is functional, can move us around the landscape and heat our homes and so on, then hydrogen is going to play a role in, in that system. Experts aren't agree on the details on what a future energy system looks like, but they all agree that hydrogen will play a big role. And the opportunity for Canada is we can make about the cheapest hydrogen in the world. So we're in a situation now where the world is having a hard time uh, using the energy products that we produce now, oil and gas. But if we upgraded those products into a zero emission fuel, we have the potential to be a global supplier of choice and the lowest cost producer of a fuel that the world wants. So considered a much greener option then overall? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a way for us. To, to take our, our uh, endowment of fossil fuels, you know, carbon-intense fossil fuels, but just change them, upgrade them into a fuel that is zero emissions and, again, is compatible with a zero-emission world. You can, you can use uh, hydrogen to heat your home. You can put it into natural gas distribution lines. So you're, um, you can uh, put it in a fuel cell and move heavy things around the landscape like trucks and, and boats and, and, uh, and trains. And it's one of the best options to heat in a cold climate as well. We've got all this natural gas infrastructure already in place, pipelines and, and so on. Boy, it wouldn't be great if we could have a different kind of gas, like hydrogen, that could be used essentially our same infrastructure, but in a way that is zero emissions. Well, we imagine that. Uh, Dan, a $100 billion a year market for hydrogen-based energy. And you say the demand, you know, is certainly out there from several countries. I'm wondering who the greatest competition would be as far as uh, being a hydrogen producer right now. 
Yeah, that hundred billion mark came from an analysis we did that I think with very reasonable assumptions said, what's the market, you know, very realistic market um, um, for Alberta, both domestically and internationally. You know, there's estimations of the global market size in, in the multiple trillions of dollars. So we think we're really literally on the first few months of a re- retooling of an energy system that is going to see hydrogen as, as much more, uh, much more dominant. And, and, and we're also, you know, seeing before our eyes an international market emerge. So in the three months since we launched the task force to produce this report in, in the Alberta heartland, uh, Germany, Japan, South Korea, and even California said that they will be importing hydrogen to meet their um, emission reduction objectives because they can't either make enough or they can't make it cheaply enough. So they will be importing hydrogen. And two countries have already um, uh, launched themselves onto the export market. So Saudi Arabia and, and Australia have already shipped hydrogen shipments internationally to Japan. So this is not an academic exercise. This is not sort of a, a uh, you know a, a modeling exercise. There's a global market emerging before our eyes, and it's really up to us um, how we want to play in that market. So Dan could be a game ch- game changer, really, for Alberta, for Canada as a whole. But there's always a downside to something. Is there something that needs to be worked on moving forward that could be considered a negative in in terms of hydrogen? Well, I think, there's, look, there's great potential with hydrogen. And again, the whole world seems to be understanding this at about the same time. We have these inherent advantages here in Alberta and in the Heartland region. So we have uh, about the cheapest feedstock in hydrogen. So we have the cheapest natural gas. We have in carbon capture and storage capabilities. We have a geology, like the, the rocks here in Alberta are actually quite porous. So we have the ability to capture the carbon dioxide that's, you know, that's created in as we produce hydrogen and store it. Um, and we have uh, you know, fantastic technical capability, you know, engineers and technicians and so on. So we have all these advantages. Having said that, other countries recognize this opportunity a bit earlier, and they are moving uh, quickly. We have uh, a national strategy that we understand the federal government is uh, to release shortly. We think that's going to be a strong document. And the provincial government uh, recognized this opportunity, and they are launching a, the development of a hydrogen roadmap. So we're getting some good leadership mm-hmm. there. Having said that, you know, this is not easy. I mean, the world is trying to figure out how to, how to make a hydrogen economy pay for itself, and we are, we are the same. So what the Transition Accelerator has done has come up with a hydrogen node model where we essentially try to de-risk the investment and actions that need to happen along the whole value chain so that we can win in this global competition. It's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. The economics are difficult, even though the potential is huge. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, it's, uh, it's, it's promising and something to look forward to mm-hmm. for sure. Thanks for your time, Dan. My pleasure. That is Dan Wicklum, CEO for Transition Accelerator. 849 on the morning news, and it's no secret that small businesses have been hit hard during the pandemic, with many being forced to close and owners feeling they need to do something radical to survive. Enter Best of Calgary Foods, a self-launched collective of 24 small business mavericks. Joining us now is Janine Norman, owner of Alpine Sausage, one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. and president of Best of Calgary Foods. Good morning to you, Janine. Good morning. This seems to me like a great idea. Seems like strength in numbers. Tell us how this collaboration came together. You know what? It's really interesting. We actually, uh, this has been three years in the making. Um, A bunch of uh, some of the vendors who are part of Best of Calgary Foods were with the market on the cloud. Unfortunately, that failed. Um, And then when it closed, I suggested that we go online. And we all promised that we would keep in touch and 
you know, go ahead and uh, move forward with that, but we never did. And uh, COVID hit, and I reapproached everyone again and said, "Hey, um, I think we're all going to need a lifeline. Let's uh, let's band together." And I called my foodie friends, and they called their foodie friends, and lo and behold, we had 24 best of breed in each category companies for food in Calgary. So smart because, you know, it's it's a tough go for so many businesses right now, small businesses particularly, and it must have been really frustrating to see you and your fellow food friends watching the big box stores remain open while you guys were forced to close at the beginning of this thing. Oh, it was it was incredible. I mean, lots of small business will probably have, you know, maybe one or two up to maybe a handful um, of customers in their store, and you literally... I mean, you look across the street, those businesses, the small businesses had to close. You look across the street and you've got multinational chains with lineups in the hundreds. And by the end of the day, they had thousands of customers through. So it was honestly like witnessing a modern version of Marie Antoinette let them eat cake. Small business was starving. Janine, you know, it's a cliche when you say something for everyone, but in this case, literally, under the umbrella of Best of Calgary Foods, there's something for everyone. This is a short segment, but give us an idea of the breadth of these uh, different uh, uh, food, uh, you know, providers in our city that are available. Um, I'm going to let Dana talk to that. She's very passionate. Uh, It's Dana Davies from um, Sweet Smith Candy Company. She's very passionate about all the uh, handcrafted artesian um, uh, foods that you can get. We've got over 1,000 um, unique items on the store already. This is Dana from Sweetness Candy Company. So going in with Janine here because she was very passionate about bringing entrepreneurs together and working together to bring really unique foods to Calgarians to expand their palate, to try something new. There's a lot of amazing handcrafted artisanal products on the site, as well as we've got coffee and tea and pie and cake. And then, of course, I make candy. We're really happy to be working with Tea Trader for tea. And we have Calgary Heritage Roasting Company for coffee. And we've also got Pie Cloud and so many other amazing Mm -hmm. companies and over 60% female entrepreneurs, which is actually a huge percentage. I love that. So, Dana, then these are delivered to the front door. You order the ones that you want to be included in the box and then the box comes to your front door. Is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. So I actually placed an order myself and the order came to my door and it felt like Christmas. And my little brother lived with me and we had so much fun opening it. And we just couldn't wait to dig in. Everything was so beautiful and so tasty. And I was so excited to support all these other local small businesses. Brilliant. Fresh, local, delicious. Thank you very much for joining us, both of you. And uh, good luck with what you're doing. I think it's going to be a huge success. Thanks, you and Andrew. That is Janine Norman, owner of Alpine Sausage, and Dana Davies with Sweet Smith Candy Company, both uh, two of the companies that are within this this great conglomeration. Bestofcalgaryfoods.com. Go online, check it out.